Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanwell Major. In this episode, we're continuing The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on Chapter 3. Chapter 3 Continued On the morning of the 23rd, I went to meet Carbuccia and Ferre at the station. As a form of introduction, the latter was brandishing a typed document. The president of the French transmitting network has the honour to present to Dr. Bombard Monsieur Jean Ferre, Foxtrot 9, Oscar Victor, with a view to studying the technical problems involved in maintaining a radio link during his voyage. Monsieur Ferre will inform Dr. Bombard of the steps that have to be taken to cooperate with this sporting and scientific experiment of such interest to radio amateurs. Signed, Marcheville, Foxtrot 8, November Hotel. Perhaps it should be pointed out that every amateur transmitter is allocated a call sign by the French Postal Administration. In France, these signs begin with an F, Foxtrot, while those of Monaco begin with three Alpha Niner. I was astonished at the official turn things had taken. It was then explained to me that I had become a special case, that what I was going to do had never been attempted before, and that very special conditions were attached to the equipment. First of all, I would need a hermetically sealed container to protect it against seawater and condensation, and this container must not be too heavy for the boat. It would need an absolutely foolproof source of power, and must be capable of working with any type of aerial and on a variety of wavelengths. It would need either a very experienced operator or a highly complicated set of controls. Jean Ferrier spared me no details. Working on short waves is a tricky business. You might need to work between 10 and 40 meters to ensure contact. In certain conditions, even a 100 kilowatt transmitter cannot be heard and yours will only have the power of 10 watts. There was only one solution, he told me, and that was to enlist the help of the radio hams. There are more than 200,000 of them scattered around the globe with long experience of picking up feeble signals. The French transmitting network would send them a notice about me and there would always be someone on watch day and night. I could only stutter my thanks at the thought of this immense host of well-wishers who would be on the lookout for me. I must have a good look at your equipment, said Jean Ferrier, before I can tell whether they'll be able to pick you up at all. There was still no sign of it, or its donors. Jean Ferrier rang them up himself. Do not worry, the stuff is on its way, he was told. Have you any idea of the problems facing you? Yes, of course. What sort of aerial have you in mind? We are going to fix it on the mast. The mast of the heretic is not more than six feet high. An aerial there would have no range at all. There was silence from the other end. Why don't you use a balloon or a kite, Jean Ferrier suggested. Good idea. What is the make of receiver? Everything is in hand. What frequency are you using? 30 megacycles. He sent off this information by telegram to Monsieur de Macheville. His reply came back immediately. 30 megacycles frequency of WWV do not understand. We did not understand either. WWV is the station of the National Bureau of Standards in Washington, which floods the ether with its 100 kilowatt transmitter. Quite clearly, my own little set was not going to be able to compete with it on the same wavelength. We telephoned my benefactors again. 
Don't worry, everything will be all right, they insisted. That evening, Friday the 23rd, one of their representatives arrived in Monaco. I have come to prepare the ground, he said. The equipment will arrive tomorrow. We told him all about the problems involved, and they staggered him. Nonsense, it's inconceivable, he said. But not one of us could raise a smile. I had now become convinced that the radio idea was hopeless. I thought of ringing up to say that I would leave without it and that they should call the whole thing off. But even then, I hesitated. Perhaps after all, they had thought out all the problems, and why should I nullify their efforts? My wife was getting anxious too. Do you think we're going to be able to keep in touch with Alain? She asked Jean Ferrier. He did not answer. He was pacing up and down like a lion in a cage, thinking of the hundreds of hours needed to adjust an amateur's transmitter and all the experts a commercial undertaking would employ for the purpose. And here were we, without as much as having seen a piece of wire. We had decided to sail on the 24th at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At 11 o'clock in the morning, a group of people arrived with the equipment, my reporter friend among them. He buttonholed Jean Ferrier. Who do I negotiate the exclusive rights with? He asked. Jean looked at him with blank incomprehension. Exclusive rights? What exclusive rights? Wasn't the idea to help two people who were risking their lives on behalf of shipwrecked sailors? The exclusive broadcasting rights. You understand, of course. I can sell them to the BBC, perhaps even to the Americans, if I have the rights. While this was going on, I was looking at the set. The transmitter was a simple chassis without any protective covering, such as one might install with infinite precautions on a laboratory table. The receiver was a simple commercial battery model. Only the generator was a piece of high-quality equipment. What about the aerial, I asked. The best we have been able to manage in the time is a kite, I was told. At midday, Jean called a meeting at my room in the hotel. On behalf of the French transmitting network, which has asked me to give my opinion in this matter, I must state, without equivocation, that there is no possibility of maintaining contact between the dinghy and land with this equipment, he said. First of all, the sets are not protected against seawater. Then, it would take an expert to use them. The first shock or the loss of the aerial would mean complete breakdown. Everyone would think the expedition had been lost at sea, and that would only cause unnecessary anxiety. Neither Bombard nor Palmer have any knowledge of Morse, and there is no means of voice transmission. Dr. Bombard, the others replied, you have nothing to worry about. This gentleman here is doubtless full of good intentions, but lacks experience. Have confidence in us. We will keep watch for your messages. My friends were appalled, and my wife consumed with worry. I held a council of war with Palmer. I knew the radio would never work, but after all, what did it matter? A month earlier, I had not dreamed of having one, and in any case, a castaway would be unlikely to be equipped with a radio transmitter. There was nothing to worry about. As the wind was in the wrong quarter, however, we put off our departure for 24 hours, so that they did at least have a day in which to install the set. I shall never forget the last sentence of the radio commentator describing the scene from the launch which towed us out to sea on Sunday the 25th. We will ask your news in the form of questions, Please signal a dot for yes and a dash for no. Goodbye, doctor. Remember, dot, yes, dash, no. Dot, yes, dash, no. I would like to put on record the events of the day that preceded our departure. Once the press had started to interest itself in our expedition, 
we had been increasingly assailed by journalists and the curious. I now have nothing to learn about the art of the news photographer trying to find the best angle for a shot. My work had been hampered for weeks, and I always seemed to have a newspaper man at my elbow. The 24 hours before our departure became a circus. I could not even walk along the street with my wife without being tapped on the shoulder by some complete stranger who asked me to stand there and kiss her so that we could get a good photograph. This wave of publicity was unfortunate as far as our departure was concerned. Certainly, the press has a right to keep the public informed, and quite often it is not so much a sober account of the facts as the human anecdote which interests the great mass of readers. But the whole spirit of the expedition was falsified in the eyes of a number of people and discredited in the minds of others. The departure had to be made sensational so that everyone lost sight of the reasons for our preliminary canter in the Mediterranean, the testing of equipment and crew. Our dress rehearsal was in danger of being judged as a first night, the least failure in doing what we had said we were going to do, or worse, had been reported as saying we were going to do, might discredit the whole expedition. No attempt was made to understand that we had everything to learn and that we had still to work out the minute day-to-day -day routine on board. We were presented as the stars of a dramatic situation. This false picture, given by the press, was particularly dangerous in view of the fact that we were setting out to challenge generally accepted principles and the dictates of common sense. I was a heretic on several counts. We were going to try to reach, in a craft not considered capable of navigation, a destination determined in advance. This first heresy particularly affected the professional seamen and navigators, who assured us that we would never get further than the Ile de Ires. More particularly, I was attacking the general belief that it was impossible to live on the resources of the sea alone, and that seawater was undrinkable. Moreover, to repeat the comments made in one of the more reputable publications, when even experienced seamen never felt absolutely confident of their ability to combat the dangers of the sea, winds and currents, a rank amateur was not hesitating to trust his companion's life and his own to a ridiculous cockle shell whose design had not even been approved by a qualified marine surveyor. For these reasons, and many others, I named our ship Le Echetique, the heretic. Fortunately, we still enjoyed the support of many persons in authority. Due to the personal intervention of the Under Secretary of State at the Ministry of Naval Affairs, Monsieur Jacques Gavini, I was granted my navigation permit. Thus it was that the heretic was able to wear the French flag all the way across the Atlantic. Part 2 Mediterranean Chapter 4 Departure We all met at dawn in the little harbour at Fonveille. Harassed by inopportunate newspaper men to whose questions I replied to the best of my ability, I supervised the loading of the equipment into the dinghy. A large crowd had started to gather, but we had no intention of setting off until about three o'clock in the afternoon, when the wind conditions were normally at their best. The group of electricians worked feverishly to put the wireless transmitter in order, encouraged by a chorus of advice from the local amateurs of Monte Carlo and Nice. At about two o'clock, an official arrived to seal the jerry cans of emergency water, which we were carrying in case the experiment ended in disaster. While we were being pestered by photographers, a messenger from the Museum of Oceanography came to tell me 
that the museum's boat was not available to tow us out to sea on a Saturday or Sunday. This point should be explained. The dinghy was incapable of sailing into the wind. In order to become castaways, we had to start as far away from the coast as possible, as otherwise an unfavourable wind would have driven us straight back again. It was therefore necessary, as with the Contiki, for us to be towed out about a dozen miles off the coast. Fortunately, there was an American cruiser anchored in the bay and its captain agreed to lend us one of his launches for the purpose. By this time, the crowd had become immense. The wind had veered to the southwest and was almost certain to drive us offshore again if we set off. The spectators were clearly tired of waiting and were impatient to see us leave. The captain of the American cruiser agreed to lend us the launch again the next morning and we decided to put off our departure till then. Jack seemed to think that the wind would veer in our favour, a prognostication confirmed by the local meteorological station, which, for once, got its forecast right. As soon as the crowd learnt of our decision, there were loud cries of complaint. Even some of the journalists started to grumble, furious at having wasted their day for nothing. Then a big fellow, dressed in sort of a cowboy style, with a wide-brimmed hat, came up to me out of the crowd and gave me this piece of advice. Young man, I know something about this business. I've just got back from South America. There is no point in being squeamish. If your companion dies on the way, don't throw him overboard. Eat him. Anything serves as food. I have even eaten shark. Uh, thank you, I replied politely. I will follow your advice. Then I went back to the hotel to get some rest. We were back again in the harbour at about half past four in the morning. The crowd had reduced itself to our own friends. The atmosphere was completely different. Everything had suddenly become real. We were no longer a circus act, but two people leaving on a long and arduous voyage. I suddenly felt buoyed up. We were really off. Jeanette was there, Jean, Jean-Luc, a few reporters together with the technicians. Jack and I ordered a last cup of white coffee and a ham roll. When these were brought, our mood had changed and we refused to eat them. After all, whether we stopped eating then or a few hours later was immaterial. We had no idea how much we were to regret our chaotic gesture during the long days of fast that we were to endure. Five o'clock. With true naval punctuality, the American cruiser's launch swept into the little harbour. In spite of the early hour, the captain himself had come along to direct operations. Everything was ready. Jack and I climbed silently into the heretic. We had barely exchanged a couple of words the whole morning. Ready? shouted the captain. Yes. Let's go. Slowly, the launch took up the tow and made for the open sea. We sat opposite each other on the inflated floats, our legs dangling inboard. The sea was quite choppy, giving us a foretaste of what bad weather was going to be like. The waves seemed short and unpredictable, running irregularly and breaking continuously. The launch rolled and pitched, but the dinghy, in spite of the sea, remained remarkably steady, which seemed a good omen. She rode the waves well, with very little motion, and made light weather of it. Everyone in the launch was hunched over and hanging on to something to keep on their feet. Every now and again the clapper of the launch's bell swung with the swell and sent out a sharp peal. With our hands completely free, Jack and I waved goodbye to those we left on shore. Right from the start, 
we felt that the heretic was proving superior to the orthodox. Jeanette was in the launch, making brave efforts to smile, but her dark sunglasses hid the tears I knew were in her eyes. A few hundred yards out, we were joined by two or three other craft, and our departure took on the aspect of a regatta. It was certainly modest enough, but later, at the start of each new lap of our journey, the partisans of heresy were to become more numerous. At this stage, our true purpose was barely understood. Although we waved and smiled, Jack and I already had the sensation that we were well on our way and no longer belonged to the world we had just left. We were already becoming part of our frail craft, the only home we were to know for many a long day and the centre of our universe. The sea round us was covered with white horses, soon to become familiar companions, and as their spray started to soak us, the launch sounded its bell. At a sign from Jack, the tow was dropped. We waved and shouted our goodbyes. The accompanying craft circled round us a couple of times, and we responded mechanically to their parting gestures. Although they did not realise it, our fellow human beings had become strangers. The sense of adventure separated them from us more surely than any wall. We had a sudden feeling that we had parted company with mankind. Our new life at sea had become more real and tangible than our relationships with those still so close. Oh, do go away, would have been the only words with meaning that we could have shouted. But although we may have thought them, we did not even whisper. Slowly, the other boats disappeared from view. Soon, we were completely alone, isolated in a strange new element in the cockle shell, which was our only support. Fear, the enemy which was to attack me so often during the coming seven months, laid its clammy hand on me for the first time, as if the last boat to disappear from sight had made way for it. The sensation only lasted a moment, a surface scratch compared with the deep wounds it had yet to cause me. We were to know the feeling well, not this light touch of fear at the moment of departure, but the panic revolt of body and soul terrified by the elements as if the whole universe had combined in one dreadful menace. The wind started to blow in strong gusts and spray hid the still sleeping land. We could just see the top of the Tete de Chien and the Italian cliffs by Bordighera. All that remained of the boats which had brought us out were their white wakes on the horizon. We were face to face with the unknown. We had conjured up visions of this solitude for so long that it seemed like some strange gift one had dreamed about for years and that was suddenly being presented in tangible form. The sea and the wind we knew and the sound of the waves, but this was our first true rendezvous with them. Now that we were here, everything seemed to fall into place and all was well. Jack and I sat in an oppressive silence. It seemed as if the whole future was weighing down on our thoughts. We did not hoist the sail immediately, as Jack was afraid it might part in the strong wind, and he wanted to test its strength and that of the mast by degrees. In order not to be driven back to Nice, we used for the first time our floating sea anchor. This was a device much in favour in the days of sail, and resuscitated for modern use by the famous Captain Voss. It can consist of any half-submerged object streamed from the bow on a length of rope. Its purpose is to keep the head of a ship into the wind in order to meet the waves in the most favourable position. In a storm, all the sails are taken in 
and the ship drifts before the wind with the sea anchor acting as a brake. This prevents the boat turning beam on to the wind and risking a capsize. Our sea anchor consisted of a little parachute which filled under the pressure of water, thus slowing down our progress exactly as an air parachute slows an airman descending from the skies. In due course, in order to support my theories, which demanded the minimum amount of equipment on board, I used my sea anchor for other purposes as well, such as catching plankton. With the anchor out, Le Heretique turned obediently to face the Italian coast. The sun rose slowly, dissipating the mist and showing the dangerous coast looming near. We had to get as much sea room as possible in order to pass the various points and promontories which stuck out like traps along our route. The most important of these were Cape Farat, Cape d'Antibes and the Lerins Islands, followed by Cape Camarat and the island of Levant, which even our least pessimistic friends had told us we would never succeed in passing. After that, the coast turned north and west and we had open sea in front of us. The wind became lighter and we hoisted our sail. This was a complicated operation as the mast was in the fore part of the boat. We had covered in the forward part of the bathtub-shaped dinghy with a tent, leaving the after part as an open deck about 6 feet 6 inches long and 3 feet 6 inches wide. We could not step on the tent to reach the bow as we would have gone right through the fin fabric and we had to perform a tightrope act along the floats. The return journey was even more acrobatic as there was not the mast to make for. I usually laid out flat, pulling myself along by my arms. Le Heretique started to move. I must say, she made a splendid sight, sailing large with the main sheet paid right out, leaving a broad wake which, though it bore no relation to her speed, gave a fine sensation of motion. We set up a considerable backwash, the height of which we hoped would give us some indication of our speed. Later, I was to judge this more nicely by the pull of the sail on the main sheet. For the time being, we were probably not making more than a knot and a half, but that was better than nothing. At about 11 o'clock, just as we were rounding Cape Ferrat, the wind died right down. It seemed it was quite a problem to cast oneself adrift. We had still hardly spoken a word, and it required an effort to break the silence. Each of us was thinking of what we had left behind. It had not taken as long to begin reacting normally to events, and all our memories and regrets as landsmen had soon reasserted themselves. The loved ones we had abandoned now reoccupied their accustomed place in our minds. The mood of feeling like legendary heroes had passed, and we had become our normal selves again. To pull ourselves together, we held our first council of war, each making an effort to appear calm and ordinary in the eyes of the other. The most difficult thing was to talk in a normal tone of voice, as we both had a tendency to speak very softly. It was something we had to correct because we realised that if we were to continue to murmur like this, the spectre of fear would take it as an invitation to assert itself. Taking advantage of this uneventful interval, we started to work out the details of our life on board. We put out a couple of fishing lines as a step towards the next meal, and then set about allotting every minute of the day in much more detail than during the long period of preparation on land. The first problem was to organise the watches. Each of us was to take the tiller in turn during the day, while the other rested. As I was certain that the abnormal life we were about to lead would demand the maximum amount of sleep, the night watches were even more important. In a sea as frequented as the Mediterranean, it was essential for one of us to be on watch, 
so we decided that one of us would take over from 8 in the evening until 1 in the morning, and the other from then until 8 in the morning. Everything on board was stowed where we could find it immediately, even in pitch darkness. In the bow, under the tent, protected from sea and damp in watertight containers, we put the cameras, films, navigation books, the sextant, first aid box, the stock of flares for use in an emergency, the sealed boxes of food and the repair kit. The compass was in its binnacle just in front of the steersman so that he could keep his eye on it at all times. No fish had nibbled at the hooks by lunchtime, but during the morning we had replaced the sea anchor by the plankton net, which not only performed the same function, but collected a supply of food adequate in composition, if not in quantity. In about an hour the net caught two full tablespoons of a sort of pap, by no means unpleasant to the taste and quite filling, if not particularly appetizing to look at. For the greater part, it consisted of animal plankton, almost exclusively copiapods, with a taste like crab or lobster puree, really quite a feast. Jack watched me eat my share with a somewhat doubtful look, but he did not wish to appear timid and finally took a taste, rather like a lost explorer being given a meal of slug jam. To his surprise, he found the dish by no means unpleasant, and I discreetly enjoyed my first victory. We had both become much calmer, and as this superb late spring day progressed, our presence in this heretical craft suddenly appeared quite normal. All our anxieties disappeared. This gradual normalization, the calm after anxiety, the quick forgetting of the wrench of separation, was to become the regular pattern in the Atlantic, to a point where there seemed nothing out of the ordinary in the strange life I was leading. My theories were already finding their justification. It was just a question of the first few hours of adaptation. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.